Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhered Apologetics. As always, brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. Uh, today I'm joined by Josh Yen, who runs the All Apologetics YouTube channel. He's another young apologist, joining me from Hong Kong. Josh, what's up, man? How are you doing? Hi, I'm, I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I'm pumped to have you on today. Uh, we're going to be talking about, I did the debate um, with Randolph Richardson on the Atheist Roundtable. We're just going to talk through that. I don't imagine it'll be for super long, but just kind of like what we thought and what we learned and but before we get into that josh could you talk about like who you are um and your youtube channel and stuff in case people don't know who you are sure just like zach mentioned i'm currently in hong kong i do the apologetics for all a youtube channel where i go over simple but i think at least i think quite reasonable responses to common atheist questions and also to help everyone try to in, in their walk with christ i also am currently uh working on this book that i'm almost finishing which is basically also kind of following the theme of what I do in my YouTube channel, where I give a decent explanation of how to be a Christian, how to help you in your walk with Christ, and also also how to uh, strengthen your walk with Christ, and how should I say this, to defend your faith against common objections. Yeah, that's essentially right. it. So, so you're writing a book, right, I guess? Yeah, it's almost done. Yeah, it's in the <laughs> works of getting it published and edited. Yeah. Wait, how old are you? I'm currently 17. Yeah. So you're like, you're like, you're like our Joe Schmidt, basically like already an author. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of the writing thing from quite a young age with, I started reading J.R. Tolkien and that inspired me quite a lot. So I'm just curious for a second, cause I didn't realize you were writing a book until you just said this, but like, what's this book going to be about? Like, could you go into a little more depth about it? I'm curious. Well, essentially it's split into a few sections cause I guess I started off writing it like around two or three years ago and I started getting closer to God and I was like well I, I grew up in a Christian family the entire like my entire life but there's a lot of things missing in my knowledge about how to be a Christian and there's a lot of these concepts which I, it was quite clear that I was I guess I didn't know of and it led to a lot of mistakes in my life and it made me not even live that Christian like I had a lot I was never really focused on God first and like turning to God so I start off the book with saying, well, these are the problems. Sorry, I, I had these few alarms set up just in case I woke up and I forgot <laughs> I forgot to turn any of them off right now. But, <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, but I, essentially it was the first part of it is basically a guide and kind of my own self-reflection and giving tips to Christians who might have been in the same boat as I was. And then it moves on to a discussion about, well, I was thinking, what are the biggest objections to Christianity? And when I look around society today, I see that the biggest objections to Christianity are normally not really God doesn't exist, but more, well, God's morals are wrong. So I then dive into a discussion on a few of the most like normal objections I hear to Christianity, like uh, you guys are homophobic, uh, you like the gender mm. issue and abortion. And, uh, and I try to give a simple response to all three of these uh, three criticisms and give good reasons for why God would make gender in this way, I guess. Mm. And finally, I do two arguments for the existence of God, but I have to admit they aren't the strongest uh, for formulations of the existence of God and definitely not the level in which Zach does in his debate, which we'll be getting <laughs> on to soon. But I mean, there meant to be a brief introduction to the, the issue, I guess. Yeah. All right, right, right. Um, so we'll get into this. Um, what's up, Germania? Shouting out um, Josh Yen here um, in Ethan Theology. Thank you. I appreciate um, your comment. 
Um, so welcome everyone who's joining us live. I uh, appreciate that. So let's talk about this debate because it, it was interesting. Um, I, I really like Randolph. It was, it was definitely a unique experience. I never, uh, in a debate, I never had like a, like in between rounds, like commentary, like the host would commentate. Uh, but like, what did you think of the, the debate, Josh? And feel free to trash me as much as you want. I'm, I'm cool with it. Well, I think that I, I completely agree with what the debate uh, people said when they said, I think you won the debate, though I have to say I, I'm very, I'm not very used to people saying who won or not lost, won the debate, if you get what I mean at the end, because it's normally just like, it's good to have them to have a conversation. That's kind of it. But I, I do think that you had like perhaps the more dominant side of the debate, but I and I think it's because the use of the contingency argument, if you get what I mean, because mm -hmm. Randolph didn't really get the contingency argument too much because he didn't really know what contingency meant, or at least that's what I got from looking at it. And I think that gave you a huge boost in the debate if I, if I had to measure things up. But in regards to the fine tuning and the miracles argument, I do still think that your fine tuning argument was way more powerful than his response, if that's the best way to put mm -hmm. it. But yeah. Yeah, and I think the miracles then was a bit more even there because of the two mm -hmm. studies. I, I wasn't expecting that type of miracle argument because normally we just hear the argument from the resurrection, which is, mm -hmm. I think, the most common one. But And I've also never seen those studies before, so that was quite interesting. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I think it'd be helpful to kind of walk through these arguments one by one. Um, it was mm -hmm. interesting, uh, just the formulation. But the contingency argument was really interesting because I thought we'd spend most of our time, like, talking about like from a necessary being to God. Like I, I thought a lot about like the argument from limits kind of like going into like that debate, but then a lot of it was just like on like breaking down what contingency means and stuff like that. So what did you think with like contingency? That was a really interesting dialogue. I wasn't necessarily expecting that. Yeah. Well, I think in the contingency argument, I don't think he actually made that much arguments against the contingency argument, if I remember correctly. Instead, it was more like clarification, mm -hmm. which which I think that you did great. I, I, I mean, I guess the terminology thing, it's quite difficult to understand a philosophical term in like, even if you give them the definition straight up. So, so I, I think that, though I have to say, perhaps we could here, if, if we were to do the debate a bit more justice, perhaps discuss a bit more about the premise two of the argument. There is a contingent fact that includes mm -hmm. all other contingent facts. Yeah. I, I feel that that wasn't perhaps if people watched the debate, did it wouldn't have had a great understanding of it because it was kind of more about the definition of contingent than the actual, like how the premise was defended or something like that. Right. Yeah. I thought like, I mean, with premise one of the contingency argument, you have like the, the principle of sufficient reason, which, you know, you can debate, but I mean, I think it's very likely true. Obviously I feel like you used it in my argument, but then premise two is really interesting because it's like, the, um, there's a contingent fact that contains all contingent facts. Um, and it's interesting to kind of like think about how like to break that down and like defend it. Like I, I try to give the analogy of like, you have a big blob of everything. Um, and, and if you imagine like, you can put together almost all contingent things into this big blob of everything. Um, and that would be like a contingent fact. That was kind of what I was aiming at. That's I'm very confident on like the first premise and the second one, I, I think is true. I just need to like study it more. Um, yeah. But it, it was interesting to think about. And I, I was hoping for more pushback. There wasn't too much there, but yeah. Well, if you want a bit of pushback, I could happily play devil's advocate. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I mean, I guess I think that the, the premise two is perhaps the most, I think it's probably true as well. I guess the, mm -hmm. the biggest response to that would be the classical, if it commits the fallacy of composition kind of thing, if you got what I mean, that like the, the, the set of all contingent facts may not be itself a contingent fact, if you got what I mean. Mm -hmm. But then if you call, say it's a necessary fact, then that necessary fact could just be God. So I don't really see how that objection would help the, the atheist, I guess, if you got what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm tracking with you. I mean, I think with the second premise, it just, it seems very intuitively true. Like, I think, like, from the from my perspective, like, we just can't have all contingent facts. Like, we, if we think of contingency as something that depends on something else for an explanation, um, I don't think it's even necessarily going against, like, an infinite regress, but, like, it would seem like by the nature of contingency, there's some sort of dependence. And if we, all we have is contingent facts, I don't see why there would be something rather than nothing. Um, so it just, it seems very intuitively true for me, the second premise of the contingency argument. Yeah, definitely. Right. So I think the last kind of objection he gave to the contingency argument was the like, it doesn't prove a specific God or things like that. Because I remember, I can't remember if it was during the Q&A or to the end of the debate, but he's like, okay, so you, you, you can get to this God, you can get to God with this contingency argument, but then how do we go from there? Um, he's like, well, what are your options? Like, well, you could be a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a philosophical theist, a deist, all these different options. And it seemed like it was kind of like that, like newer version of atheism, I want to say, where it's like, you can't prove your specific God, which wasn't the debate topic. I don't know if that was ran off for a question. Um, but that was interesting. So what was your thoughts on just the necessary being to God? Well, I, I have to admit, I'm not very, like, I don't have too much research about the argument from limits, but mm -hmm. I do seem like at face value that it is a very good argument. And I do think that if it works, it does seem to point towards an omnipotent or at least limitless uh, God, which I think is quite, uh, which is definitely closer to the classical mon monotheistic God instead of a polytheistic God, which I think he was talking uh, quite a lot in the debate, which was, to me, quite surprising because normally yeah, yeah, the multi multi guys yeah, thing, yeah. It, it was quite surprising because normally people don't. I guess they would raise it, but they don't use it as such a main objection as Randolph did in his debate. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. Though, like, because I I was listening to a, he's only done a couple of debates, but I listened to his debates before, and he brought up this objection, like, why just one god um, instead of multiple gods. And it's an interesting objection, but I mean, I don't think it gets to like the heart of like a contingency argument or a fine tuning argument. Like if we're debating, does God exist? I mean, for me to win the debate, obviously I believe there's only one God, but polytheism could be true. And I'd still like technically win the debate, I guess. Well, I guess we Asians might have quite a lot to blame for the fact that he raised <laughs> this polytheistic God, because I saw in his name tag that he had a Chinese name there, like a Zhang Wen Dao or something like that. Yeah. And, and in Asia, we do have quite a lot of polytheism, so it might be his oriental uh, approach which has led him to this polytheistic idea. So I'm not sure if I should say I kind of am quite guilty for this. <laughs> I think the only Chinese I know is like washing wall with a ping wall, which is like, I think I like green apples, if, I, if I'm remembering it <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you like, you like your apples, yeah. <laughs> like that. <laughs> My friend taught me that living in the middle of Pennsylvania in the United States. Um, so we talked about the contingency argument uh, and I think his big issue was just kind of fleshing out like what it meant like for something to be contingent versus necessary. Mm -hmm. We talked about that a while and the necessary being the guy. The fine tuning argument was interesting 
because yeah. I think his biggest objection was I, I just used like Craig's fine tuning argument. Um, yeah, sorry, I just yeah, I was I just saw I saw a comment from GR Mania. I was cutting. Um, sure, I'd love to come on your channel for discussion, not a debate anytime, man. Feel free to reach out, email me. Lots of fun at here in apologetics.gmail.com. Uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought there for a second because I was like, wait, what is this? Um, I saw a debate and I'm like, yeah, no, I don't like to. Debating is interesting. All right, but back to where I was with the fine tuning argument. Um, his biggest objection, it seemed like to me, was like restricting it to like um, chance necessity of design, uh, which was interesting. So, what did you think about like our dialogue and the fine tuning argument? Well, I think that the two main objections that he raised was definitely one of them was the chance necessity or design, and the other one was the small parts of the universe is uh, hospitable to human life. I think those were his two main arguments. And since we raised the, uh, the chance or design one, we could, I guess, turn to discuss that first. I think at the end of the day, it seems that his argument is more like, well, we don't know enough, so we cannot really understand the, we can't just use the destructive syllogism here, which I think, well, I'm not sure if I'm understanding him correctly, but I think is quite a problematic approach for his own argumentation because it kind of just disproves disjunctive syllogisms if you got by me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was interesting because he talked a lot about like it was almost like you can't test this idea because we got into like it was almost like empirical ver like a, like an empiricist like a high guard regard for like almost scientism for for a minute and it seemed like because he's like well we can't see in reality other universes to compare with like um for like the fine-tuning how things would be different if there were different constants um like we just we just can't know like we're not in a position to know um which you know i responded with like the principle of indifference and stuff but i mean i don't know i just don't really think that kind of like well you just can't know um response works because i think there's a lot of things that we can't know with 100 percent like cartesian certainty you know yeah, I I do think your response does work, and I seem that and there's a thing that I don't really like about these these verification and falsification things, which I do think that you say is that these things are all, and I think he kind of realizes himself as well. He says, well, these might be sound philosophical principles, but philosoph philosophy doesn't lead to proof, and that's something I think he said in his debate, not word for word, but something along those lines. But I I think that. The problem with such a view is that these philosophical statements are in fact philosophical statements and nothing more like science is at the end of the day uh, a methodology and not exactly a certain state of facts and you could just as easily accept another methodology and say well your approaches are wrong and I think that the methodology of falsification and verification though it seems it sounds at the at face value quite reasonable if you try to test it, I mean, I guess testing makes it a bit weird here, but if you try to look at it deeper, I think it does lead to some errors, it's especially like some things you can't, you just can't really falsify, like your own axioms. Like you're not meant to falsify axioms. You're meant to accept them if they're a coherent system and they're, they provide the most accurate results. So I think that like his idea of you have to prove these things, you have to prove these things. Well, what does he mean by prove? Does he mean scientifically like empirically prove them in front of you or prove it mathematically like a more philosophical approach it really depends on what he means by proving here and i don't think he's kind of defined his own terms enough here for us to 
for him to even present his own argument, if you got what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that it would have been helpful, like, with, like, um, verificationism. Like, I don't want to say, like, Randolph holds to this. It just seemed like it for this, like, one little bit um, in this in the debate during the live discussion. Um, and I think it's helpful to realize, like, science is really good for science's job. Like, science's job isn't to explain everything. It's, like, to investigate, like, na natural phenomena and such. And, like, once you get to, like, metaphysical like foundations of reality like you're gonna get a hit a point where like science can't explain everything um yeah uh joshua phillips says uh, a great way to defend fine tuning is to compare it to the problem of evil like the bayesian version and a made-up version where the evidence is quite obviously favoring a certain hypothesis um this usually reveals that the objections are not fine-tuned specific and are more against the bayesian form which is much harder to object to and I mean, I agree with him. I was thinking about during the debate, like, do I use Craig's argument or do I do like a more like probabilistic argument? Um, but I figured for the debate, like either one kind of works and I was more comfortable defending Craig's, but it, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, because I guess with the debate thing, it's more a bit of a show as well as like mm -hmm. uh, actual intellectual argument as well. So I guess yeah. the more witty and the more simple arguments always go the best. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's, yeah, I, th I think your choice of choosing Craig's one is definitely correct. And <laughs> yeah. and I think that it, it, it was quite well. Yeah. yeah. I understand with, with what he's saying about, like, premise one, with, like, why limit it to, like, chance uh, design or uh, physical necessity? Like, why limit it? And that's the, I think that's the issue with Craig's argument. I mean, I think it still works, but I think that that's the issue is we're limited to those three. But, I mean, those are really, like, the only three. Maybe the multiverse you could throw on there um, is like a fourth, but those are really the only options I think we have with regard to like fine tuning. Cause I, I think that when I clarified with fine tuning um, in the beginning, he's like, well, what about the universe is lifeless? And I talked about, we're talking about like fundamental constants or like early in universe conditions with low entropy. Like I think he kind of realized that um, the like life, the universe is lifeless and doesn't really support uh, or go against the fine tuning argument. Yeah. And I think, since you've raised that point, I think we could, I just, a thing is that I feel that Randolph kind of, now I'm not trying to critique him too much here, but I think that he kind of conflates different arguments together. Like yeah. I think he first approached your cosmological argument or your contingency argument as if it was the Kalam cosmological yeah. argument, because they were suddenly some kind of ex nihilo creation thing, which kind of arose somewhere there. And I was like, well, I don't think Zach Rose uh, raise that argument and here he seems to conflate it with either a, a fine-tuning argument which is based on the existence of human life or the watchmaker argument which he does raise later and is not necessarily raised by Zach here so I think there was a bit of perhaps he was confusing a few arguments together if you got what I mean. Yeah yeah I felt that a little bit too and I think What's written off under? I think he just didn't because I like I don't think he ever heard of like Leibniz contingency argument before I put it up to him in that debate. So I think mm -hmm. it, it took him a minute to under to get his mind around it, which is totally fair. Like I don't yeah, expect definitely me like, to throw like four premises and a conclusion at you and like to figure it out like in two seconds. Um, but it did seem like in the beginning he's like, well, we can't investigate the properties of nothing, but that's kind of like irrelevant to like the contingency argument, at least as far as I know of. Um, unless you want to argue nothing's your necessary being which would be interesting yeah and actually I, I, I would say perhaps one more thing is about his perhaps his response that the universe most of the universe is not hospitable to life I guess if we discuss that a bit more here I think it does soon like
become quite clear that it doesn't matter if the other the rest of the universe is not hospitable to life because on the christian hypothesis it it is definitely possible and i'm not saying it must be possible but it's more possible to see that god made humans specifically so the fact that the rest of the universe is not hospitable to humans life doesn't really i, I think take away from the christian hypothesis here of course this is drawn closer to the christian god hypothesis in the debate which seems which is not ex exactly the thing you want to defend here but I think that even if we accept that most of the universe is not hospitable to life, it doesn't really take away from any of our arguments, if you got what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm totally tracking with you. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else regarding the fine-tuning. I think we covered most of it. It's an interesting argument. I really like fine-tuning because I think it complements well. Like, I think with, like, contingency, I think getting to a necessary being is, like, super solid. Like, I, I think that with like philosophy of religion and like arguments for God, I think that's one of the, my most confident things is like, there's a necessary being in it. And I'm pretty certain it's God. But then when you throw in like fine tuning or um, moral realism or like things like that, I think it really helps you kind of like paint out like the attributes of like this necessary being that you can get to with like the first four stages of like Proust's contingency argument. Definitely. I do, I do think that the, the, the cosmological argument is perhaps is, is my favorite argument and and I, and I think that this, like the fine tuning argument kind of helps strengthen the hypo, like the cumulative case and the fine tuning plays mm -hmm. a very important part in that discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely agree with you. Yeah. Um, so we'll go to miracles in a second, but the programmer said, um, do you tend to study philosophy once you head to college, Josh? That is currently the plan, I guess. I mean, I, I dare say me and my friend who, are, who also like to do philosophy are the the only two people in the entire year who are trying to do philosophy, which is perhaps a result of our, also as a result of our ethnic kind of Chinese people only do STEM. And, and I mean, to some degree it is quite true. 90% of the entire year are trying to do STEM. So, I mean, I guess the hypothesis has been verified here and not falsified. <laughs> empirical so, verification yes. has been finally verified for all of the empirical verificationists out there. So, yeah. <laughs> so, the argument for miracles that was an interesting one because i was i was thinking about heading into the debate i was like okay i i like contingency arguments i like fine-tuning arguments like what can, what else can i throw in there and i feel like like i knew i was coming onto a channel that um was probably more of like a more modern version of atheism and i knew mm -hmm. randolph would hold like a more like a lack of belief kind of view of atheism which is totally fine i don't if he that's what he wants to believe i'm not gonna force him to go otherwise but i was like well, they're big on like empirical studies, empirical sciences. I was like, I knew I've heard about these like prayer studies before. So I, I brought those into the debate just to say like that the whole like theism, atheism, like there's theism is actually supported when you look at like these empirical studies. Um, so what did you think of it? Because that was interesting for me. What did you think of the argument for miracles? Well, I will say that, okay, I think first of all, the syllogism is definitely sound. I, I think the syllogism is correct and that it's good in that way. But I was actually very surprised that you raised the prayer studies. And and I personally have not uh, done any research into this, so I wouldn't speak as anyone who has any sense of expertise in this. But I do say that I would say that uh, I was actually quite surprised. And the this I would say that the strength of this argument is perhaps weaker than other the other arguments that you've raised, though I at, though at face value, I can't really find anything directly wrong about it. And I do agree that. The counter study is at worst both equal, which you've also said in your debate. Mm -hmm. 
So I just don't think it's a, perhaps the strongest fair like argument for the existence of God. Well, I mean like the evidence you've used, but but then again, I I haven't done enough research to see say definitively about the topic you've got. I mean. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not super like in depth in these studies. Like I haven't like looked at all the studies out there on prayer. I've just looked at a few and I, I just thought the argument would be useful because I, I didn't want to get into the like you didn't use like any empirical evidence or empirical sciences because it's interesting. Like the results, if I'm remembering the studies, like they're outside the margin of error and the probability um, of, what the, of what they say of both of these occurring like naturalistically is like less than 0.1 percent. And, you know, you could say. Well, it's not convincing enough for these counter studies, which is fine. But I, I, I just wonder, like, when I'm looking at these studies, I'm like, is there a way to explain this under naturalism? Like, if, if the, if the, if the methodology is like correct and it's a double-blind study, like, it just seems like you wouldn't expect this if naturalism is true. Hmm. I would definitely agree that you wouldn't expect it if naturalism is true. But I guess I'll have to play the devil's advocate yeah. a bit more because I dare say I'm not too convinced with it. Well, I guess mm -hmm. it's because fundamentally, I guess it's also about my theological view as well here. Because you could say at one on one time, I think you say you you would expect uh, that or, that on naturalism or, or I mean on on theism, you said I, under theism the prayer group should have be should have better health. But I guess in response to that, someone could say, well, perhaps you could look at all the other people who have been prayed for, but nothing mm -hmm. kind of happened to them. If you got what I mean, it yeah, seems yeah, to, yeah. I forget. I I assume that response might be a bit. I guess. Mm. Yeah, more I, think, there. I think that's a good objection. It was interesting because Randolph Moore brought it up like with his with his like response to the argument. He brought up the counter study, which was like it seemed like there was no effect, which is fine. And I talked about that a little bit. And then he brought up like what well what's the point of prayer? Like a theological response. Like if God knows everything, like what, what what's the point of prayer? Which was interesting to me because it seemed like a theological question more than like an empirical question. Um, so what was your question again? Shoot, I totally forget. I was thinking about like what Randolph responded with. No worries. My my question is kind of similar to uh, to Randolph's one, but I guess the my response would be more like, well, and instead of raising a counter study, I'll, I'll perhaps perhaps I'll perhaps say, uh, well, what are the coming like? How about the people who? got prayed for and mm, themselves uh, prayed for themselves but still haven't gotten helped too much. right yeah that's great um i think i think that would kind of almost go with like when randolph brought up like this counter study uh that showed like that there was no like it seemed like there was no effective prayer um and i just say like god isn't obliged to act in like some sort of like law of nature or law of chemistry where he has to act in a certain way if these like certain conditions are met so I think that with like these studies, like, I mean, sure, you might want this to happen, but we're still left with like this empirical evidence where we have these studies where it seems like not what you'd expect if prayer had absolutely no effect whatsoever in a double blind survey. So I, what I'd say is like, that's fair, but I don't think that kind of contradicts this evidence that I have over here, um, for, like mm -hmm. the efficiency of prayer in these studies. Mm. It's definitely quite hard to, I'll say, argue against or falsify any study which has been proven, I guess, to the degree that your studies mm -hmm. have been proven. It's more like we could raise another counter hypothesis, mm -hmm. but it's not like, well, this study is wrong by by any sense of the imagination, I guess. And I do think that, and I, and I was quite surprised actually, if I could raise this thing as well. It's uh, 
Randolph said, miracles are anecdotes and can be acts of magic. And I guess he was here, was once again, I, I, I think, referring to an argument from the resurrection, if you got what I mean. Mm -hmm. it, it seemed less like an argument from against the argument that you raised, which was more of a scientific one, because if he then says, well, th this, the journal is an anecdote, I don't, I don't really see how that could possibly follow from, the, from any sense of approach to a peer-reviewed study. But I was quite surprised that he raised that, like the miracles or anecdotes thing, to mm -hmm. be honest. Right. Yeah, that's why I think with like, I remember I did a debate a while ago with Deconverted Man, which was interesting. Um, and I kind of brought up an argument for miracles, but I didn't use like peer reviewed studies. Well, I used like um, a couple of stories in medical journals where I was like, one was like an out of body near death experience. And the other one was like, um, this like case where they're like, yeah, this wasn't the placebo effect. Some of this person was prayed for. We don't really know what happened. And you could kind of like, I think, explain those studies away with like, hey, maybe we just don't know. Um, naturalism has these hidden explanations. But I think with these prayer studies, like it kind of hits you in the face where like we're dealing with double blind studies. Um, these people have no idea whether they're being prayed for or not. And these things just kind of happen, um, which is really interesting. And I'm thinking of like how to falsify like that argument I made with these prayer studies because I'm thinking about it, it's like I don't know like you have like would like 50 counter studies falsify that argument or like would um, maybe like you you have to show like there's an issue in the study like how do you think you could falsify my argument because I just don't know because it seems like there's like these facts and I don't know how you can deal with them in, in response. Yeah, well, I think the only way to I wouldn't say falsify it because it seems like the statistics you've raised are correct. But I guess the only way to do anything against it would be to test even more people. Like imagine you test everyone with COVID in the world right now, that would probably be a few million or something like that, greater than the study. And if you pray for the people with COVID, perhaps you could find a situation where the numbers who weren't prayed for were so overwhelmingly better than the ones who were prayed for. And that would change the entire balance of people who prayed for who were better is normally like in your studies, perhaps like maybe the bar chart would be a bit higher than the ones who weren't prayed for. But then because you suddenly have a lot of new data, the, the number of people who weren't prayed for who got better would suddenly boost the bar chart way higher than the, the number of people who were prayed for in the studies. And perhaps that would somewhat, I would say, perhaps maybe go against your hypothesis, but it wouldn't falsify the evidence you've used, if you got what I mean. Yeah, and that's, that's what I think is tricky about this, because I feel like with any, like, contrary study, like, even if you have, like, 10,000 or 100,000 or a million people that you study, and it's, like, 50-50, I feel like I could always go back to the, like, well, God's free, he doesn't have to act in a certain way um, with, like, regards to these prayer studies, which is an interesting, like, that's why I'm just kind of, like, I think they work, and I definitely think they provide, like, empirical support. But it's just it's just interesting, like, and I've been thinking about it more, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, I think this is true, and that's why I used it in the debate. But, I mean, it's just something interesting because there's not a lot of people kind of using that kind of argument with, like, these studies. Yeah, but I guess the point about God being freely able to choose, I guess that is perhaps the next place where someone perhaps would argue against your, your mm -hmm. idea. And perhaps someone could suggest it, no pun intended, that the God uh, response here is a bit of a deus ex machina, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, like a God of kind of the machines. And it's like, yeah. well, you're kind of just pulling that out of anywhere to save your argument, if you got what I mean. 
Now, I, now I don't think that's perfectly a good argument or a good response to your objection, but I do. I I, I think I can see where they're coming from if they、mm-hmm. raise such a response. I guess because, yeah, God could choose to act, not act, but well, what made him act in certain places? And well, I guess you could say, well, who are we to understand God? But then, in response to that, some could just say, well, all these be- he,、uh, people who were prayed for, who were better healed, were all just accidents. Because who knows? Maybe they had some own internal inspiration about it. And I'm not sure that, that I guess. I guess there's a room for error here, or at least vagueity, which, or ambiguity, which does it, which might not be fully explained by, well, it must be God or the prayer which helped these people. If you got what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we're only dealing with. I I want to get into Craig Keener's book more on miracles because he、mm-hmm. he brings forth more studies, which would be interesting.、Um, but like. It's just interesting because I think it's a field that like needs more research. Like we only、mm-hmm. like, we're dealing only with a few studies here,、um, and you know there's a, there's a few that I present that seem to show that. But like there's this prayer seems to be like effective in terms of, like these peer reviewed studies, and there's others where it's like no, it doesn't make a difference when these people are like studied. So I think it's just a field that needs more research. It's kind of、mm-hmm. what I've come to. Yeah, I agree with that as well. It's perhaps the best touched field yet. Right, so we talked about the contingency argument,、um, the fine tuning, and the miracles argument. I mean, that was most of the debate. Randolph didn't provide like any positive arguments for atheism, which is fine.、Uh, but like, do you have any other thoughts about the debate? Well, I no, and I was just I would say that I'm quite surprised of his way of argumentation, which I, I'm actually very. I'll, I'll say that he seems to be the nicest atheist I've seen in that.、Mm-hmm. Really、yeah, he's such a great guy. Yeah, he seems like an absolute phenomenal guy. And I have great respect for him because of that nicety. I guess someone who deals with YouTube comments, I guess, is a bit of a different approach here. But I, I would say he is perhaps one of the nicest atheists I have come across, apart from a few of my atheist friends. And yeah, I think that was that's perhaps the funnest thing. I mean, I guess the only other point which we haven't really discussed too much is the, the I guess, the polytheistic one. But I mean, it's up to you if you want to discuss that. Sure,、yes. sure. What did you think about that? Well, I think that. His idea of polytheism was quite was interesting, but、mm-hmm. I do say and I do think that well, my response to at least my response to this problem would normally be that well, on on polytheism, well, you wouldn't really have objective moral standards if you got what I mean,、mm-hmm. because when you take into account polytheism, and, I, and I'm just looking at this and I'm just thinking about the psych psychology of polytheism. Because as Christians we know it's wrong, but well, why why did it mainly come or spread around the entire ancient world? And my and my kind of conclusion is that perhaps well, polytheism is it allows people to reconcile their understanding of a need for a god with their desire to have control over their own lives in relativism. Because when you have multiple gods with multiple own ideas and stuff like that, because you know you have Zeus who I don't know wants to sleep with everyone, or or like Hades who likes killing people. I, I, I'm sure these are caricatures of the Greek mythology, but I mean somewhere along those lines, it's somewhat correct, I guess.、Mm-hmm. If imagine you have a, a worshiping cult of Zeus and a worshiping cult of Hades, you have two contradictory gods with two contradictory teachings in a. In in an actual pantheon of gods, right? So, well, if that's the case, shouldn't we be expecting subjective moral standards if this pantheon actually existed?、Mm-hmm. Like, perhaps the god of death would 
have perhaps not said the Nazis were wrong or perhaps like uh, Apollo or some other god of truth would say, well, the Nazis were wrong. And then you have massive like, di like arguments or conflicts within this pantheon of gods, which I don't think is the case. And we don't accept that. We do believe in objective moral standards. And I think this objective moral standards response is perhaps quite an easy way to, I think, well, disprove, not disprove, but weaken the polytheistic, uh, polytheistic, polytheistic hypothesis, though I do think your Occam's razor response does make sense. And I, and I was quite confused when he also said that, well, perhaps having multiple less perfect beings is more simple than mm -hmm. a perfect being, if you got what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I asked him, like, why pose, like, multiple, like, limited <laughs> gods versus one, like, perfect and who'd be simple um, God. Like, it seems more simple than, like, just a better explanation just for one. And I think he kind of almost seeded that point, but then said that couldn't there just be, like, multiple, like, gods who are, like, omnipotent, omniscient, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I, it sounds like to me, like, when we're talking about these things, it sounds like we're talking about the same being, um, if something's yeah. omnipotent and mm -hmm. omniscient and, and such. Definitely, because it seems to be somewhat analytically impossible for there to be more than one greatest possible being Exactly. His greatest kind of implies one, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it, it doesn't seem possible to have, like, multiple maximally or great, greatest mm -hmm. conceivable beings. It just seems perhaps quite wrong. So, yeah, I think that was perhaps the, his last response that he raised, I guess. Yeah, because I think if you have, like, two maximally great beings, well, no, neither one of them would really be maximally great because mm -hmm. they're not greater than the other beings. So there's, there seems like there's some sort of, like, limitation on them which would add complexity and... You know, we don't like mm -hmm. those arbitrary limits. So, yeah, definitely. Right. So, it was a fun debate with Raynoff. Like, I was thinking about it. Like, the first time I debated him um, would have been the summer of 20, a couple years ago when I was supposed to be, debate some other guy, but then he didn't show up. So, Raynoff just popped in like at the same exact time. And I was just like this naive, like 18 or 18 year old who really didn't just use like basic arguments. And it's been interesting. Like, just a progression over time. He's, he's just a great guy. So it was a lot yeah. of fun. Seems like an absolutely phenomenal guy to debate with. And seems like a really good guy that, I mean, you could meet up with. And he seems like one of the nicest guys that I've seen in the entire atheist sphere of people, I guess. Yeah. Very genuine, honest, humble guy. So seems like a nice guy. Yeah. He, he seemed a little fresh. It was funny because he brought up the like idea that like, atheism is just a lack of belief, which is fine. But I think he said it was the traditional, de like the typical definition. Yeah, that was kind of surprising. Like, I brought up that that wasn't true, and I saw this look at him. Like I was like, it was like a little like, oh, like a little angry look. And I was like, yeah. I felt bad because he's such a nice guy, and I didn't want to like trigger him because I said that he was <laughs> wrong. Um, but that, that was the first time I hadn't seen Raynoff like a smile the whole time. So that was kind of funny. And Raynoff, yeah. we love you. You're awesome, dude. Mm, definitely. Right on. Anything else you want to bring up before we start to wrap things up here? Not really. Everything's all good. I think we covered all of the main points in the debate. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Um, thanks for joining me, Josh, the 17-year-old prodigy from Hong Kong that's going to have that first book coming out soon, man. Uh, yeah. If, if Feel free to share any last thoughts. And like, if people want to follow you, like I know you have your YouTube channel below, but how do people follow um, Joshua Yen, who's going to take over the world. Um, <laughs> I, I think I might become the the Andrew Loke in the building, but I don't mean, you say that because you're Asian. You don't have to say that because just because you're. No, no worries. It we do, I I do live like quite close to his university, so I guess there's quite a lot of parallels here. But <laughs> but I mean, apart from that, I, I would say that 
Uh, if you want to check out the work I do, it's uh, Apologetics for All, the YouTube channel. Most of the stuff there is actually quite a simple response. There's no like really massive philosophical things. So I guess I I would be I, I'm planning to make perhaps either another YouTube channel or or perhaps just a separate part of the, my YouTube channel, which goes in depth into more philosophical, more like more serious discussion and. I'll, and I'll be making updates about that on my channel. And I, I haven't really thought of how to bring this more academic side forward, apart from the more simple responses. And that's basically it, I guess. It's just, I'll, I'll, I'm just kind of playing it by ear and hopefully everything goes well, kind of, that stage right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for sure. One last question. Are you British? You sound British. I know you- I do go to a British school, so I do have that, I guess I do have that accent, yeah. I love oh, those British people giving you that amazing accent. It's a posh accent makes everyone sound a bit smarter than they actually are. But I mean, you can you can never complain about that. <laughs> yeah, man, good stuff. Um, I encourage everyone to if, if subscribe to Josh's YouTube channel. You can do that down below. Uh, Joshua Phillip, Programmer Roxby, everyone who joined us. Thank you, um, Josh. It's been real, man. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank me. For tuning in, as always, to Here in Apologetics. Be sure to subscribe to Josh on your way out, and you can subscribe to us if you're new here. Leave a like. And if you enjoy the show, you can support us on Patreon. Your contributions of one or two or three dollars a month goes a long ways to reach us, re help us reach full funding. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Have a good night. God bless. Or good morning if you're um, like Josh and Hong Kong. Bye bye.